Welcome to our first episode of Wildlife Health Talks. In this podcast, we will chat with wildlife health professionals about the joys and challenges of their job and the emerging issues of wildlife health locally and worldwide. Our guests will be researchers, practicing wildlife or zoo vets and pathologists. But what they have all in common is a long-standing affinity with the Wildlife Disease Association. I'm your host Kat, I'm a vet, science communicator and wildlife health researcher at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. My first guest of this podcast is Dr. Jenny Bloodgood. Jenny is a research veterinarian in marine animal health at the Dauphin Island Sea Lab, located on the northern shores of the Gulf of Mexico. Jenny's research focuses on the health of wildlife in and around the Gulf of Mexico and how it can be improved. I'm taking you on a field visit to Jenny's lab on the pretty Dauphin Island, Alabama. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thanks, Kat. I'm happy to be here. Jenny, let's start with some Wildlife Disease Association-related questions. When did you join the WDA? So I actually joined the WDA back in 2013 as a PhD student at the University of Georgia. Uh, my advisor, Sonia Hernandez, was very active and still is in WDA. And so being a wildlife health student, I got really excited about joining the club. We had a local student chapter and I started out as treasurer, became president, um, and was very active in that throughout my time as a PhD student and a veterinary student. And then I stayed on as a professional after I graduated. Cool. What do you like about the WDA? WDA is such a wonderful organization. It's it's small and tight-knit. The community is really great. I love the relationships that biologists and veterinarians develop, um, all centered around the goal of wildlife health. Nice. And do you have a favorite memory linked to the WDA, like at a conference or workshop? So one of my favorite memories is actually the very first WDA I went to. I got so excited about the auction that I just had to buy something and I ended up going home with a dart gun at my first conference. Wow, that's a pretty good one to pick up there. <laughs> so we have to say, so at every WDA conference, usually there's a silent auction, right? And like people can, um, yeah, can basically put money on um, the items they like and uh, yeah, apparently you put your eyes on a dart gun. Exactly, I had to have it. <laughs> Did you ever use it? I, I didn't. Unfortunately, it, it wasn't functioning, but it was a very cool um, historical kind of item. It was the old sort of rifle style, so I still have it though. <laughs> that is a funny story for sure. Okay, let's talk a bit about um, the Sea Lab and your work there. So what's to start with, what's the mission of the Dauphin Island Sea Lab? So the mission of the Sea Lab is to become a transformative center for US-based coastal and oceanic research and education. So we're sort of centered on these two pillars of, of research and education. And on the research side and the education side, we are part of the Marine Environmental Sciences Consortium. And that's made up of 22 public and private colleges and universities throughout and around Alabama. Uh, so we actually accept students and have faculty members associated with all of these places. And students can come down, they can be undergraduate or graduate students and spend time taking classes and doing research here at the Sea Lab. So we are the center for marine science education for the whole state. 
And then on the education side, we have the Discovery Hall programs, and that's actually offering kindergarten through 12th grade education. And we do summer camps um, and have fun activities for kids throughout the year. We have something called the Bay Mobile, which is a uh, van that is sort of a mesocosm of Mobile Bay, and they can drive it around and go to schools that can't come to us. Uh, so we get out there and do community education as well. I have to throw in there. So um, the island is located right at the mouth of Mobile Bay, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so we're we're in a great spot. We're in the northern Gulf of Mexico, as you mentioned, um, but we can access all of Alabama from where we are. So we can. It takes about two hours to drive all the way around the bay, or you can take a ferry across um, over to Fort Morgan. And also, we spend a lot of time doing education and um, other things over on that side of the bay as well. And then we also have an aquarium on campus, and we were recently named the Alabama Aquarium. So it's the primary aquarium of Alabama, which is really exciting, um, and we feature sort of local fauna and marine life here. Yeah, awesome. And now that I've been, or I'm, I am on this island right now, I can tell it's a super pretty place to work. So you're just, um, yeah, you're, you're just so lucky. It's Thanks amazing. so much. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a bit about what does your usual working day as a research veterinarian in marine mammal health look like? That's a great question. Is there such question. a thing at yeah. all? <laughs> um, I can tell you sort of in general, maybe not not every day is the same for sure. So um, as the veterinarian side of, of my life, I work with the Alabama Marine Mammal Stranding Network. Uh, so we respond to live and dead marine mammals for the entire state of Alabama. We have a fairly small coastline, but we do get a lot of strandings here. So we have a very active team. And we also actually cover manatees for the state of Mississippi. So we do manatees in both states. So and I feel like you might have that urge to say in this, is in this context that there are manatees in Alabama. There right? are manatees in Alabama. And maybe we'll talk more about that later. But they actually extend all the way to Texas. People don't realize there are rare but occasional reports of manatees all the way west to They're Texas. They're not just in Florida. Not just in Florida. <laughs> I have to ask, though, is this, um, do they migrate a lot? So would they migrate back and forth from Florida to say all the way to Texas or is that a different population? They will, that's a great question. So um, we have the Florida manatee, which is a subspecies of the West Indian manatee and they do migrate in the warmer months. They'll come over to Alabama and we have documented cases of animals that come over to Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana and even Texas um, and they'll migrate back to Florida when it gets cold. Uh, but it's an interesting topic with, with climate change and warming waters. We think it's more likely that animals will continue to stay here longer and potentially overwinter here. Talking about manatees, your team is planning a field trip uh, next week to catch and tag some manatees. Um, how do you catch a manatee? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, it's a a collaborative process. So we we actually um, we have an ongoing sighting network. It's called the Manatee Sighting Network here, and it was started in 2007. So we actually have really great historical data on where manatees are in and around Mobile Bay, and that's a citizen science-based project. So people call in every time they see a manatee, and we document um, verified reports of manatees. So we kind of know where they hang out, and we know this year where they're hanging out around Mobile Bay. And then we've also developed relationships with pilots in the area. And so through uh, certifications and meeting certain standards with the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the federal authority that oversees manatees, uh, we have a pilot who will come and be able to fly low over Mobile Bay and 
look in places that we know should have a lot of manatees and radio down to us and say, yes, there are manatees here. And then we will deploy a team to go. So we work really closely with SeaWorld and the Clearwater Marine Aquarium Research Institute in the actual capture of the manatees. So there's specialized boats that will go out and we have a boat that has a removable transom, the back part of the boat, and there's a net that you can have in the back of the boat that you'll deploy and actually encircle the manatee in the net. And then the net is pulled in by people on the boat and the manatee is inside the net and you create what's called a bag with the net and the manatee will be inside the bag and you pull the animal up onto the boat with a lot of human power. Um, and then once the manatee's on board, you can actually go to a shallow area and either you know, park the boat um, or you can, you can bring the manatee onto land too. How do you lift the, uh, the manatee in the net out of the water? Do you have a crane on the boat? No, it's actually in entirely physical human wow. power yes they can get quite heavy <laughs> yes right? they are in our area they the largest manatee we documented I think was close to 1600 pounds they're quite large as adults that's around 300 kilos or something like that a bit more uh, more like 600 I think oh okay. 500 600 right um, yeah, so they do get quite large, um, but we are able to, to pull them onto the boat with usually five to six people. And how do the manatee re manatees usually react? Are they very um, nervous and tend to freak out, or how do they react? It's, it's really interesting. So at first they may sort of thrash a little bit, but then it seems like they've sort of accepted their, their fate and their abduction. And they, they don't have many down. options really, right? Yeah, and, and they really do calm down and just sort of hang out in sternal recumbency. So on their on their belly um, and they then we can do the work that we need to do. What are you trying to find out by tagging the manatees in this specific project? Yeah so we were really fortunate to be funded by an Alabama Centers of Excellence grant uh, for this project and we are capturing and tagging the manatees so the main purpose is to put satellite tags on the manatees to document their movements and where they spend their time throughout Mobile Bay and whether they are migrating back and forth from, from Florida. And then we're also doing another part of the project is to do health assessments on the side so we will take samples so that we can learn more about these animals. Um, but a major part of the grant is also looking at environmental DNA, so eDNA, and how well it detects manatees in the water. So we will collect water samples right next to the manatees and see if we find manatee DNA in the water. Maybe not everyone is familiar with eDNA, so it basically means that you look, um, you take a water sample and then you sequence all the DNA that's in there and then you compare it to the database and see who does this DNA belong to? Is that right? Exactly, yeah. And it's super great for our area because the water's pretty murky here. So sometimes it's really hard to see if there are manatees and eDNA might be a way that in the future we can simply take a water sample and know if there are manatees in the area rather than actually having to physically see them. That is pretty cool for sure. I still find this technique almost like magic because it feels like um, the DNA in the water must be so highly diluted and still our technology is good enough 
now to still detect those tiny, tiny amounts of DNA. It's just mind blowing. For sure. It's really, it really is magical. And I, I think the technology has a little ways to go, but we're hoping that this project will augment what we have so far. Yeah, nice. And you say that um, members of the public can call to report sightings of, uh, of manatees. How often would that happen? Like, is it every day one sighting or once a week or how, yeah, how often does that happen? It really depends on, on the public. So we do get more calls in the summer months when there's more manatees here, uh, but we document calls throughout the year, even in winter time when it's cold. And that brings up a good point that manatees don't tolerate cold water very well. So anything under 20 degrees Celsius, which is about 68 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, they, they experience something called cold stress. And so in the months of November to about March, if we get a call about a manatee, we will actually always go out to monitor the animal and make sure they're not experiencing cold stress. Bring warming blankets and stuff. No, no. <laughs> Actually, yes, <laughs> um, we, we will. We really? warm blankets. Um, we call them space blankets. They're the shiny ones that keep heat in. Uh, we always bring those and heaters with us on a response in case the animal does need to be rescued and we will immediately start to warm them up. <laughs> that is a funny thought. I mean, a serious issue, but funny thought, mental yep. picture wise. I feel like I wonder now, now that we talk about that, when you see a manatee, I like to compare them to sweet potatoes, just huge, because they are so big and they yes. seem to, to have a lot of fat. Um, <laughs> why do they have such an issue with the cold? Wouldn't you think that they are pretty well insulated? You would think so, but in the winter they actually start to lose a lot of that fat. So we in we noticed recently we had um, a manatee stranded, deceased, unfortunately, uh, in the summer though, and we noticed very much how much extra fat that animal had compared to our winter manatees. So they really start to deplete their fat stores and they're not eating as much, their metabolism slows down, uh, and so they are actually a lot thinner in the winter time and just not as well insulated. That's very interesting, and um, I have to here that um, sea cows, which is the family the manatees belong to, they are, as far as I'm aware, the only group of marine mammals that are entirely vegetarian, right? Living on seagrass only. And um, you might come up with the idea that this might not be the best idea evolution-wise, at least not when it comes to be having to be flexible in times of climate change, unfortunately, when the, when the water gets colder in, in winter. Exactly, yes. It's really interesting because of the unusual mortality event on the eastern coast of Florida recently where seagrass beds have been declining and some manatees have died of starvation. We may see more manatees come our way in the future with climate change and warming and that's actually one of the reasons we want to put satellite transmitters on the manatees to see where they're going and if they are potentially spending more time in our area with climate change. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I feel like there's so many different aspects and species involved in your work that we could talk all day, but um, let's um, talk about one other topic which um, played quite a big role in your work. So you basically worked on the aftermaths of um, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which happened by now 12 years ago in 2010, but it still has consequences for the, for the present. So... Um, just as a quick background, back then, I had to look this up, I had no idea, 950 million liters of oil leaked into the Gulf of Mexico, um, harming or killing more than 100,000 birds, sea turtles and marine mammals. So um, how, yeah, tell us a bit about how does the oil spill still affect marine mammals in the Gulf of Mexico today? 
it's a, a great question because there's still a lot of research being done in the aftermath of the oil spill and, and we do know that it is still affecting animals. So people have equated the amount of oil that spilled to 200 Olympic sized swimming pools. Thanks for that. That's so much better, yeah, too, so easier <laughs> to mention then. <laughs> it's a huge amount of oil and it actually extended all the way from Louisiana to the panhandle of Florida. So it did affect Alabama dolphins. Uh, so we are interested in how their health is still impacted by the oil. And there's a lot of organizations all around um, who are doing research into the effects of the oil. Uh, but some of the things that people have found are continued evidence of lung disease, heart disease, reproductive success is declining in these animals. They also experience decreased adrenal function, so uh, their hormone productions are limited and the adrenal glands, one of the important hormones that they produce is cortisol or the stress hormone, and so they're not as able to respond to stressors in the environment. Um, and then also just general decreased immune function. So even now, 12 years after the spill, we're still seeing lasting effects of the oil spill. Um, an interesting paper came out recently actually that um, modeled the effects of the oil and how long it would take populations of different different populations of cetaceans to recover from the oil spill and bottlenose dolphins were projected to take 35 years to recover from the oil. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. That is unbelievable and I'm sure most people wouldn't be aware of that. You think like, okay, it's a terrible, huge event, but then 12 years later it must surely be all good, right? But it's not. And I have to add, um, so it was considered one of the largest environmental disasters in world history, which I also was not aware yes. of. So that is that is crazy. In your career, you've also worked with sea turtles and the rehabilitation of sea turtles. What are common reasons for the sea turtles needing treatment and being brought into rehab centers? Yeah, so during my PhD, I actually worked on green sea turtles, but there are seven species of sea turtles worldwide. Um, and there are many reasons that they come into rehabilitation, but some of them are disease, um, anthropogenic reasons, such as being hit by a boat or hooked by um, you know, a fishing equipment and things like that. There's also animals in our region on the Atlantic coast uh, get cold stunned, interestingly. So animals on the northeastern coast of the United States um, in Massachusetts and other northern areas, uh, when it gets too cold, they experience something called cold stunning. And it's basically a, a metabolic thing where they end up being sort of frozen in the water and needing of rescue. And so they will be transported to southern states for rehabilitation and release into warmer waters once they're uh, better suited. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, we mustn't forget that they are reptiles after all, right? So yep. um, although every I feel like every um, marine creature suffers from um, yeah if the if the temperatures are too low, but manatees are obviously mammals, so they can handle it better. So one of the aspects in the sea turtles you studied was their gut microbiome and how that correlates with what they are what they are being fed during rehabilitation. Um, what did you what did you find and why is that why did you think there might be an important connection yeah so that's a, a 
really interesting question. So we worked with green sea turtles, which as adults are actually herbivorous, so they eat things like seagrass and algae. Uh, but in rehab conditions, they often come in emaciated and they don't really want to eat our best approximations of seagrass and algae, which happen to be peppers and lettuce and cucumbers. Um, and so we, in rehab situations, will often feed them seafood, even though theoretically in the wild they are eating a vegetarian-based diet. Uh, but they seem to like it, and I sort of liken it to like macaroni and cheese when people aren't feeling good. You know, you don't want to eat the healthy stuff, you want to eat the comfort food. Um, but anecdotally, people were noticing that the animals that stayed on a seafood-based diet for a long period of time became obese and developed fatty liver disease and things like that. So no one had ever really quantified the effects. Um, so we looked at animals coming into rehabilitation at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center and followed them over time and started them out on a primarily seafood-based diet and transitioned them to a primarily vegetable-based diet. And we looked at how their blood parameters and then also their fecal microbiome changed over time in rehabilitation with the changes in diet. And, and how did it change? It did change. So interestingly, at the beginning of rehabilitation, they had bacteria that were better suited for digesting uh, plant polysaccharides, which makes sense because their metabolism is pretty slow. So even though that's when they were eating the most seafood, it's reflective of what they were eating in the wild. And then later in rehab, after they had eaten a lot of seafood and were just being transitioned to that vegetable-based diet, they actually had a gut microbiome that was more composed of bacteria that are good at breaking down protein and fat. Uh, so the thought would be that animals, even though they may be appear clinically ready to be released, their gut microbiome might actually be not primed to eat and digest the food that they need to eat in the wild, so the seagrass and the algae. It would be still primed to digest fats and, and the seafood that they were eating in rehab. So we encourage people to actually try to transition their animals sooner rather than later to that vegetable-based diet. Interesting. And how long would you say does it take for the microbiome to adjust back to the plant-based diet? It's a great question. I think there's more research that could be done in that area. Um, all of our animals, you know, had secondary issues for why they were in rehabilitation, so there's a lot of confounding factors, but I would say that we saw a shift in that microbiome within about a month or two. It still takes a while, right? Like sure those does. bacteria, you would think they're quite flexible little things, but um, <laughs> they still take a while to adapt, I it would does. say. It does, and I think that kind of goes back to them being being reptiles and sort of having a slow, slow metabolism, slow to adjust to everything. That makes sense, yeah. It is, it is a bit ironic though, I have to say, that what you mentioned before, that there is a risk if you keep them on a, on a seafood-based diet for too long, they get fat. It's, it's quite hilarious. So they turn into like couch potato turtles, basically. They really like, do. I want to stay here. This is great. Yeah, they're, they're content and happy, but their blood panels say, I have really high cholesterol and triglycerides. And we're like, oh no, that's not great. <laughs> this is hilarious. So um, we mentioned um, sea turtles, dolphins, manatees, but the Sea Lab works on many other species and topics as well. Do you want to give us a bit of a summary? What other topics are there the Sea Lab looks into? Yeah, absolutely. So we, our team is actually part of the Marine Mammal Research Program here at the Sea Lab, and the director here is Dr. Ruth Carmichael. So she oversees all of the research for our lab. We have lots of PhD and master's students and interns and volunteers rotating through the lab working on various 
research project. So uh, some of the things that we're working on, we have a, a student working on the skin microbiome of bottlenose dolphins and how it may be affected by freshwater in our area. Uh, Mobile Bay is an, a dynamic estuary that gets a lot of freshwater input. So um, we do see die-offs of dolphins almost every year of from freshwater exposure. And we actually have another person who's working on better characterizing the length of time and how low the salinity needs to go before dolphins experience um, the skin lesions that are characteristic of, of freshwater exposure. And then we also have projects on looking at the demographics of stranding. So who, what, when, where, and, and then the why. So I recently gave a presentation at WDA about the causes of death in bottlenose dolphins in our area and, and, and why they're dying. And then really excited, we actually received a grant really recently. It's a Prescott Marine Mammal grant um, to look at stranding response and basically how well of a job we do of finding stranded animals. So we proposed to create decoy dolphin carcasses that we will make out of basically like burlap and environmentally friendly materials. And we're going to place them in different areas around the island that range from like a sandy beach where they'll be easy to see to the marsh where there's tall grass and they'll be difficult to see. And we're going to have tags that the public can call them in and then also look at the effectiveness of our team at finding them via different methods. So by boat-based surveys, also using unmanned aerial surveillance with a drone, uh, and then also using a UTV, which we recently got, so a, a four-wheeler that we can drive around the island to look for stranded carcasses. Very cool, I love that project, that is so funny. Although it's a bit like, um mocking the the public isn't it and when they call would you tell them straight away like oh yeah thank you now you're part of our survey but it's actually not a real dead dolphin so you don't don't worry yeah that's a really good point we had to we had some discussions with the mayor of the town before we you know wrote up this proposal and got his approval to do it because it may you know confuse people a little bit but i think we will explain the purpose of the research project and hopefully everyone will be supportive <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious it's, and um all Although it's a sad event, but I'm sure everyone will be in the end will be very happy to be part of your research and to contribute to that. So I think it's a great, so. great project. Thank you. Cool. Um, yeah, so we have to come to an end here, but thanks so much for being my guest on the show, Jenny. Thanks, Kat. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Wildlife Health Talks. Bye for now.